Good morning there, Valley Bible Church. It is so good to see you. Thank you for joining us on our online platform. We are so thankful for this technology. It's been fun to utilize it so we can make sure that we're in your living room, that we're able to still uh, gather together around God's Word and be encouraged by what we find in there. If you're a guest with us for the first time, if this is the first time you've joined us, I just want to say how much of an honor it is for us to be engaged with you and thank you for just jumping in, viewing us. We hope that you've enjoyed the service so far and that you continue to do so. We're, we're really excited to kind of close off our series that we've started. It's a, a three-part series we've called Our Story. And, and what we're trying to do in this story called Our Story is really dive into the grand story of the Bible, the, the large story of God and man. And, and what we're trying to do is show how this story is just all encompassing. This story includes my story. This story includes your story. This story is God's story. It is our story. And what we're hoping to do as we kind of unpack this story is really find where we fit, where we fit in God's story. And we're also seeing how this is going to shape the future of our church's story. So let's just jump right in. Let me get into a topic that is very important in any story, and that is conflict. You have to have conflict in a story. In fact, every great story has great conflict. If a story doesn't have great conflict, it's usually not a great story. Think of Star Wars. Star Wars has the Death Star. You have this just ominous space station the size of a moon. It can destroy an entire planet. This thing needs to be eliminated. So the Rebel Alliance joins forces and they overcome this conflict. And they destroy the Death Star, freeing the galaxy of the tyranny of the Empire. Or you could think of the Avengers. The Avengers, they have Thanos. They have this this apocalyptic alien who has a death wish for the universe and they need to stop him from snapping all of uh, existence or at least half of existence from the universe. So the Avengers, they assemble and they have to destroy Thanos. You also think of Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, it's great conflict. Well, is a ring. Uh, They have this ring, this magic jewelry that was forged in fire or a volcano or something like that. I don't really know that story too well, but this one ring can, can bring everyone under submission. So Frodo has to destroy this ring. That's his conflict. Every great story has conflict. So let's ask ourselves the question, what's our conflict? Well, what's the big thing that we have to overcome? What's our one ring or Thanos or, or our Death Star? What is our conflict? Well, as we've walked through these stories, as we've walked through Jesus' stories found in Luke chapter 15 that really give us a broad scope of God's story, we see the biggest problem was the problem of sin. And that problem was solved by the hero. The hero is not us. The hero is Jesus Christ. Okay, so if the hero destroys that big problem, what's our conflict? What do we have to overcome? And I think all of us face this conflict. I think we'll be surprised at what that conflict is. So we got to go to the last part of Jesus' stories. Jesus tells three stories in Luke chapter 15. And these three stories have three parts. The first part is something is lost. We saw that that was 
our part of the story. We were lost. Humanity was lost. Our, in our sin and in our rebellion, we abandoned God. The second part of the story was there's somebody searching for the thing lost, and this one searching is God. God is searching for us, looking for us, chasing us down. And the third part of the story is now that this someone has found this something, now there's a party. That's where we find our conflict. Our great conflict is we have to go to the party. Now that doesn't sound like a problem. That doesn't really sound like a conflict. Our great conflict is we have to go into a party. That seems very easy. But for one of our characters in our story, Jesus' story, this is a severe problem, a huge hurdle, a giant conflict. He can't come to the party. And why is that? It's because he has a self-righteous posture. See, this is our conflict. We can't go to the party and celebrate with our Heavenly Father, celebrate with God, because we struggle with self-righteousness. What is that? Self-righteousness essentially means I can do it on my own. God, I don't need your help. I can be good on my own. I can be righteous on my own. The self-righteous posture says I can do good and I deserve more. And those that can't do as good as me deserve less. That's that self-righteous posture. And that is a sickness, a spiritual sickness we must all overcome. Let me show you how this is Jesus' point, and I want to say his main point in all the three stories that we've covered so far in Luke chapter 15. But let's jump right into Luke chapter 15, and I want to show you how this is Jesus' kind of big idea is to address the self-righteous. In fact, that's the big idea for this morning. So what I want you to do is maybe find a note in your phone and, and, and just jot this down or a piece of paper. You could write this down. I want you to capture this one thought. This is the big idea for this morning. The big idea is this. The self-righteous are just as lost as sinners. The self-righteous are just as lost as sinners. The unrighteous and the self-righteous are both lost, are both far away from God. It's true that self-righteousness looks religious. It looks good. It looks moral. It looks pure. But inside, it's rotten. Rotten to the core. Look at how Jesus addresses this. Let's jump to the beginning of Luke chapter 15, and then we're going to hit the three, or the end part of each of the three stories. So let's again get the setup, the kind of setting or context in which Jesus delivers these three stories. The story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. This is Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus is addressing this crowd, this audience. They, they are the religious elite. They are the ones who look like they're righteous. And they're grumbling because Jesus is receiving people who in their eyes are impure. They are sinners. They're tax collectors. I think Jesus is going to identify the main problem with these people he's addressing is they have a self-righteous posture. And a symptom of that self-righteousness is they're not hospitable to those that aren't like them. They believe they deserve more, 
and they believe others deserve less. Look at another encounter that Jesus has with them, just so we can see that this is, I think, Jesus' diagnosis of those who he's speaking to, the religious elite of the day. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells another story, and I want to show you, look at how the themes are very similar. It's the same audiences, it's the Pharisees, it's the sinners, tax collectors, and the battle is over righteousness. Who is righteous in God's sight? Look at Jesus' description. This is Luke chapter 18, verse 9. It says, And he told this parable, this story, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You see that? They are self-righteous. He's addressing this crowd, same crowd that's in Luke chapter 15. And treated others with contempt. You see the mere image there? They believe they deserve more, they are righteous, and others deserve less. They treat them with contempt. This is the same audience here. Look at these prayers offered up by these two groups. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Same audience as Luke chapter 15. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust adulterers, and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Rolling out his resume of righteousness. Did you hear any requests there? No. Just an arrogant parade of his moral resume. A self-righteous prayer. But look at the other prayer. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. He went down to his house justified. That means righteous. He was righteous, not the one who is self-righteous. See, Jesus knows the audience that he is addressing here. It's the same group dealing with the same problem just a little bit earlier in his ministry. Jesus must tell these stories to show these Pharisees, to show these ones who are spiritually prideful, who are just arrogantly parading around their moral resume, thinking that they can win and earn God's favor. They are blinded to their true spiritual condition. They, they think that their religiosity will help them, but really it's ruining their relationship with God. I mean, it's incredibly ironic. These, these men are posturing themselves as if they're insiders, but really they're outsiders. God didn't accept that prayer, didn't call that man righteous in Luke chapter 18. And we'll see that these self-righteous Pharisees, these self-righteous religious leaders are very far from the heart of God. And this is how Jesus will address them. Jesus will tell his three stories. In the first two stories, what Jesus will do, he will tell them, this is what you should be doing. Something was lost. Someone found that thing lost. And then a party happened. Then hospitality happened. Then joy happened. A celebration happened. This is what you should be doing. This is Jesus' point in the first two stories. You should be celebrating with me. You should be overjoyed that those who are lost are now found, that sinners are coming to have their sins forgiven. You should be overjoyed in this. You should be celebrating with me. 
But instead, you grumble, you are angry, you are absent from the party. In the last story, Jesus is going to kind of turn the end of the story a little bit. And he's going to say, let me show you what you are doing. So the first two stories kind of give an example. Here's what you should be doing. Here's how the pattern should lay out. Here's how the story should end. But the last of the stories, the third story will say, but here is how the story is playing out right now. And it doesn't match over here. Let's look at those first two where Jesus describes what should happen. So the first story was the story of a man, a shepherd, who lost a sheep. We looked at that he searched for the sheep. He searched until he found the sheep. And then after he finds the sheep, he's just rejoicing over this. And look what he does in verse 6. And when he comes home, it says, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. He invites people to a party. And just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Look at the second story. It ends the same exact way. Verse 9, this is when the woman, she has found the coin. She has searched for it, diligently swept the house, lit a lamp, all of that stuff. She found the coin, and look what she does. The same thing that the shepherd does. And when she has found it, this is verse 9, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, same group there, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the, lost, or found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner, who repents. What does Jesus describe here? He describes a party. Friends and neighbors, everybody come. This is exciting. I I had this sheep, this very significant sheep. It was important to me and I found it and now I'm so excited. If you've ever lost a dog or a pet or something like that and you finally, maybe your friends go around the town and they're stapling up little pictures on telephone poles, posting on social media or whatever it is. And when you finally find it, you're going to post something about that. You're going to tell them. Maybe you're going to have some people over and you're all going to get excited and they're going to bring their dogs or their cats or however it works for you and your pet life. They'll bring over their fish, drop them in your aquarium and have a fish party or something, right? You get excited. This is the same thing described here. This woman, she loses a coin, right? Maybe you've lost something extremely valuable and then you find it and you get excited and you want to share in this joy. You want to burst forth in this great party. But then Jesus takes this to another level. Jesus says, hey, what I'm really talking about is not losing a sheep or losing a coin, a pet or an item. Jesus is saying, no, what's lost is people. People are lost. Humanity is lost. People are in sin. They've rebelled against God. They've believed a lie. They've trusted in something that will not give them satisfaction. They have wandered away from the protection and provision of the Heavenly Father. But then when they come back, it's great rejoicing. And he said, there's a party in heaven with with angels, it says, rejoicing. Well, who doesn't want to go to that party? I I mean, think about that. Think about a party where you have the archangel Michael DJing the party. And you've got the omnipotent dance crew of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit delivering out the sickest, tightest choreography you've ever seen. Like, who doesn't want to go to that type of party? 
That is an amazing party. Well, Jesus hints at those who don't go to the party. In verse 7, and he's going to unpack this more, but in verse 7, he gives us a hint about those who don't party. He kind of points the finger at the Pharisees, at the scribes, at the religious teachers, and he says, this is right here why you do not party and you do not have joy with me. Look at verse 7, kind of snuck in there a little bit as we read through it, but let's go through it slowly there. Look at verse 7. It says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. This means who turns around, who changes the direction of their life. Instead of running away from God, they're now going to run towards God. They're going to follow Jesus Christ. Just so I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who turns his life over, who repents, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, we've got to be careful here because I think we've got to see that Jesus is speaking sarcastically or ironically, however you want to label that. Jesus is not saying there are a group of people who don't need to turn to God. He's not saying there's a group of people who don't need his salvation, his mercy, the forgiveness of sins that is in his death and resurrection. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That does not match with the rest of what Jesus has said so far in the Gospel of Luke. That doesn't match what Jesus' first century followers said. There is no group who does not need to turn back to God. The Bible describes that we have all turned away from God in our sin and in our rebellion, and we must turn back to Him. We all need repentance. This is clear. One of Jesus' first century followers, Peter, in his first sermon in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, he calls on this crowd and he says, you all need to repent. Notice what he did there. He didn't say, well, maybe some of you in this group need to hear this message. Maybe you in the back, you're falling asleep, you need to repent, but you don't overhear. No, he, he makes a, a general appeal, a, an, an inclusive appeal. All of you need to repent. Paul does the same thing, the great first century church missionary, church planner. says in Acts chapter 17, when he is preaching, he says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Well, that sounds pretty inclusive there. All people everywhere. I don't know how you get an exemption clause from that. If you are in a place that is a where and you are a person, you're included in all persons everywhere. So what is Jesus saying here? I think Jesus is attacking their view of themselves. He sees that the self-righteous don't think they need to repent. It's like somebody who's sick, but nobody can convince them of their sickness. So they push away medical attention. They push away medical treatment. Well, that's a foolish thing to do. This sick person is not going to get better. They're blinded by their foolishness. They should be aware that they need help. Pushing it away is not going to, ignore it is not going to make the problem go away. This is what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is pointing the finger at them and saying, your self-righteousness has blinded you. You think you need no repentance, but it is your most desperate need. Now, the third story is where this is really going to pick up. 
Because Jesus is going to talk now about two sons. Two sons that are lost. This is the story of what we often call the prodigal son. But this story really isn't about the prodigal. The story rather is about the other son. It's not about the younger son. It's really about the older son. It's not about the son, the young son who rebelled, who took his father's inheritance, ran away with it. We looked at that the last two weeks. It's really not about him. He is definitely a significant character. But the real emphasis is on his brother, his older brother, who was always at home. And when the younger brother comes back, comes back from his rebellion, comes back from his reckless living, comes back from his sinful ways, repents and turns around. The older brother's reaction is the main focus of Jesus because this is who he's telling these stories to. He's telling these stories to these Pharisees and scribes, these religious leaders who are self-righteous. Well, the character that is self-righteous is the older brother. In fact, this is the part of the story that gets the most attention. If we look at the stories, just even glance at Luke 15, you'll see that the majority of conversation or dialogue happens between the father and the older brother, not between the younger brother and the father. What does that tell us? That this is the point. Jesus is bringing this to an apex, to a climax here, and really thrusting it before his audience saying, you need to pay close attention to this. And I want to invite you to see yourself here. We all struggle with self-righteousness. We all struggle with the idea that we deserve more and others deserve less. We may not want to admit that, out loud, but I think we feel that. I think we act that way. I think that temptation is in all of us, and we have all succumbed in some way, in some form of doing that. We've all thought of our religious pursuit, our pursuit of God. We've all thought of it with language of earning and deserving. We've all found ourselves at times complaining to God, that God, I deserve more. I think we've all found ourselves at a spot in our lives where we've said, I've done better than they have and they get more than me. We want them to have less. I think we all, if we're honest, would find ourselves at times in the same seat as the scribes and the Pharisees. We grumble. We grumble about unqualified people coming to God. We've categorized our obedience as a burden. And when it doesn't pay off the way we want it to, we grumble and complain. And when others receive free blessings from God, we feel that we've been treated unjustly. Look at the posture of the older brother. Watch this play out. And I just invite you to insert yourself in this part of the story. And I'll be honest, I have to insert myself in this part of the story. And I was extremely convicted this week that the older brother is often right here inside of me. 
Let's journey together. So we have this young son who comes back to the father. He's embraced. The, the father throws a party. Well, the older brother is away in the field and he hears the commotion. So let's pick it up from there. We're to start in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard this music and he heard this dancing. Here's the third part of the story, the party. And he called one of the servants and asked him what, what these things meant. What holiday is it? I don't think it's the Day of Atonement. What's going on? Why is there such celebration? Verse 27. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now look at verse 28. What will be the reaction of our older brother? What would be your reaction? If you had a younger sibling who ran away in utter rebellion, who shamed your parents, who took a third of their wealth, ran away to Vegas, spent it all in vain living, came back broken, bruised, a little dirty, pleaded with mom and dad, and then dad threw a party and started giving him a bunch of stuff. I think if we're all honest inside... We may not have the same degree of response, but we may have a little bit of this in us. Look at what he does in verse 28. You can see not only ourselves here, but we can see the Pharisees and the scribes here as well. Look at verse 28. But he was angry and he refused to go in. He's angry and then he's absent. He's angry. Well, it makes sense why he's angry. Now, we're going to unpack a little bit of his anger, but... From what we know of the story already, we can see. In verse 12, it spoke about how the property had been divided. When the younger son goes to the father, he says, Father, here's what I want you to do. Give me what I deserve, my inheritance. So the father somehow liquidates his, uh, at least a third of his estate, hands it over to the younger boy. But it also says there's a division that goes to the older son. So what does that mean? The older son has everything now, everything that the father has left, yet he still has control as he is alive, but all of that he has now goes to the older son. Everything he has is his. So imagine the ownership that he has over all of these gifts that his father is giving to his younger brother. He's probably worried that his dad is going to squander his estate, squander his inheritance. You can feel it rise up in the older brother there. This is not fair. He deserves less than this. I deserve more than this. Now watch how the parade of his righteousness rises up in him as displayed before us. It says that he doesn't go into the party. This would be a huge slight culturally. I mean, a disgraceful move by this older brother. In this type of culture, in a highly familial culture where family was incredibly important to miss out on a party that is hosted at your own home and your father is the one who's orchestrating all of this, to not go in as one of two sons, to not go into this party would be a gargantuan offense. And from what it sounds like, this is a public party. The town is probably all there. And so this one boy standing outside is probably known and seen by everybody. You can almost imagine people as they're being served punch 
standing next to each other. And, hey, hey, did you see where Charlie is? Yeah, Charlie's not even here. He's out there. He's sulking. He's angry. Oh, man, he's mad. The murmur in the party must have been incredibly strong. Yet the father goes out. Remarkable. Look at verse, the half, second half of verse 28. His father came and entreated him. Isn't this wonderful? What a gracious father, again on display. This is the father who ran after the first son, who ran after the younger son, who ran after the the rebel, who ran after the sinner. And this is the same father who runs after the self-righteous. See, the righteous or the self-righteous are just as lost as sinners. They need the Father to run to them. And this is what the Father does patiently. This idea of Him entreating Him in the Greek is, 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 a, is a continuous kind of pleading. He continually goes out to the Son and pleads with Him over and over again to come in and enjoy, enjoy the party. But look at the conflict that's in this older brother. He is so self-righteous. He cannot bring himself to enjoy the celebration of a sinner coming back. And look at his self-righteousness on display, verse 29. But he answers his father, look, no statement to a father has ever respectfully started with Look, no, sir, that's a good way to start a conversation with your father. You could almost see his son pointing his finger at his dad. You look here, father. He doesn't even address him as father. He belittles his father as tender as the father is with this older brother, is as harsh as the older brother is back to his father. Look. He doesn't respect him. He tries to rebuke his father. You can feel this is not going to go well. Look at it as it continues. Look, these many years I served you. Now that's a very interesting word chosen by the older brother. This word is about slavery. This word is about a slave serving a master. This isn't the kind word of a, of a son saying, I am working with my father. No, that's not here. This isn't familial terms. This is business terms. This is slavery terms. He's saying, I have served you as a slave. You don't treat me as a son. I work hard for you. Do you hear the self-righteous banter and mantra here? He's throwing a tantrum now. I deserve more than this. I've earned more than this. I've worked for more than this. I have broken my back in obedience to you. I'm like a slave to you, Dad. Wow. Look at the next phrase. I've served you. I'm a slave to you. I'm I'm not a son. The next phrase. I have never disobeyed your command. Never. Never. Really? Never once. Anytime my kids use an exaggeration like never or always, I always 
tell them you can't say always, right? That's the only always you can use, and you can never say always, always. <laughs> because it's silly for this boy to actually think that, that he somehow has the moral upper ground on his dad. He, he's so full of this moral superiority that he thinks he can arrogantly plead before his father with his resume in hand to, that you must give me your favor. Look at what I've earned. I have never I disobeyed you. I am perfect before you. Spotless. Wow. But at times, you, don't you hear your own voice in this, though? At times, I think we've said similar things. Maybe not to the degree that's said here, but at least at some degree. I deserve more than this. I have earned more than this. You should give me more than this. The self-righteousness bleeds out into how not only he views himself, but how he views his brother. See, the symptoms of self-righteousness are complaining and a lack of hospitality. We complain that we deserve more, and we show no hospitality to others, believing they deserve less. The boy doesn't see himself right, and he doesn't see his brother right. Look at what he says about his brother. We're going to pick up the beginning of verse 29 and kind of read through But he answers his father, look, these many years I've served you as a slave and never disobeyed your command. You you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He's saying, you've never given me an animal that's really of no value, uh, of not much value, at least compared to the fatted calf you gave to my younger brother, the rebel. You gave him steak and lobster. You've never given me a hot dog. That's kind of what he's comparing here. You don't give me something small, and yet you give this rebel, this sinner, this one who lives recklessly, you've given him this great feast. And look at how he addresses this brother. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Verse 30. But when this son of yours. Interesting words there. Notice how he doesn't say, when my brother came back. He can't do it. He, he can't think of himself in connection with his brother. He's disowned his brother. This is not my brother. This son of yours is what he says. His language there is not only one of really disavowing any relationship with his brother, but he's almost accusing the father of being complicit to the sin of of kind of approving of this sinful posture, almost trying to throw guilt on the father. The the boy is saying, this brother or your son is guilty and you are too. So now he's moved his tantrum to to kind of its apex. That he said that he deserves more. And now he is starting to say, Father, you're not qualified as being good. You are unjust. I don't get what I deserve, and you do things that are wrong. You're not just missing the mark, Father. You're moving in the wrong direction. Wow. But then the Father speaks and is patient 
with this older brother. Just as reckless and rebellious as his first son was, so too his second son is just as lost, just as far away from him. The irony here is just amazing. I love what Jesus does here just with the idea of space in this story. The boy who was an outsider in a foreign land is now inside. And the boy who was always inside and near the father and near the blessings is now on the outside. What a great reversal that has happened. And yet the father patiently pleads with this son too. You see, the self-righteous are just as lost as sinners. Both are lost. And the father chases after both of them. The sinner and the self-righteous. The unrighteous and the self-righteous. Those who know they don't have it all together and those who think they all have it together. The father runs to both of them. Look at what the father says. Verse 31. And he said to him, Son. Now we don't get the, the nuances here in the English, but a deeper idiom could be found here. Not just son, but my child. It's a tender term here. He's not yelling at his son. He's not pointing the finger at his son. He's not matching the gestures of the older boy. Pointing the finger, saying, no, you look. That's not his posture. His posture is to come alongside of him, put his arm around him, whisper in his ear, just as he fell on the neck of the young boy as he ran to the city gates to find him and to kiss him and embrace him. So too, he is running to his older son, saying, son, you must come in. Look at what he says. Verse 31, he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. You've missed my blessings. You've missed my grace. You've missed my mercy. But this is the posture of the self-righteous. They miss the blessings. They miss the abundance of God's grace. They're ungrateful. Ungrateful. They don't count the blessing. They count what's missing. This is what this boy did. He didn't see the vast amount of wealth, prosperity and joy that surrounded him all his days of service. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, notice this phrase, your brother. See, the father will not allow his older boy to distance himself from his brother. No, he says, not, not just my son, your brother. Your brother. We had to celebrate. We had to celebrate. He was dead and is alive. He was lost and now found. That, that first part of that verse, verse 32, says it was fitting. It's a decent translation of what is happening, but I don't think it gives the full kind of meaning of what's being said here. We read that term and it almost sounds like it's saying it is fitting, meaning, well, it was good we threw a party. That was a good idea that we had. We, we could have done it. We could have not done it. Whatever. But that, that's not the language here. The language is one of necessity, meaning we had to do this. This was the only appropriate action in this situation. The only appropriate response was celebration. 
The son was lost and is now found. You are lost. You need to be found. It is time to celebrate any time someone comes back to the Father. We must do this. The self-righteous are just as lost as sinners. But it's hard to go to the party. It's hard to admit that we can't be righteous on our own. It's hard to admit that we don't have everything put together. It's hard to admit our need to confess our pride. It's hard for us to say that I can't do it. I'm not good enough. In fact, I think in our culture, we would belittle that kind of posture. We're so full of of self-esteem kind of ideology that we just press forward these good ideas of greatness is inside you. Be the best that you can be and all of those things. And there's a sentiment to that that I would agree with. But we exaggerate that and make that too large that we actually convince people that they're indestructible, that they're perfect, that they just live their truth and they'll be okay. But that is not true. It's one of the most dangerous things you can say to somebody is that you are okay. Because none of us are okay. None of us have it all put together. None of us are perfect. And that is not a good place to be in. The greatest thing we can say to each other is we are dearly loved by a Father who will give us what we so desperately need. But we have to come to the party. Come to it humbly. And our self-righteousness stops us Stops us from going to the party that's really not about the achievements of the younger brother or the achievements of the older brother. This party is not about human achievements. It's about the father gaining what was lost. It's about God gaining glory. But the self-righteous can't do that. They want the credit. They want the prize. They want to earn. They want to deserve. They want the credit. They want more. And they want others to have less. I told you throughout this series that that I would show how this story and these elements and understanding these things would has played out in my life. Well, let me tell you that that I've struggled with a self-righteous attitude. I've struggled being the older brother. In fact, my most recent struggle, and I would say a very deep struggle with this, came about three or four years ago. Some really great things happened for my wife, Lindsay, and I three or four years ago, about four years ago, a little over four years ago. Uh, we were promoted. We were the young adults pastor at Not Avenue Christian Church, and we were promoted to take on the, the lead role. And I was very excited uh, to do that. I was excited to do that at a young age. Um, it was exciting, just, just a little bit over 30, to jump into that kind of role. It was exciting to us. We also uh, purchased a home in the area, something that was really great. And these were wonderful blessings. We were very excited about them and honored that God would, uh, would give those to us. But they weren't, they weren't um, the answers to persistent prayers. We weren't persistently praying for a promotion or, or, or persistently praying uh, for a home. We weren't. We had, we had another thing that we were persistently praying for. And we were praying for uh, a third child. And uh, we were finding great difficulty in having a third child. If you know a little bit about our family, the gap between number two and number three is six years. 
And that gap was not completely intentional. Uh, we had been trying for a long time and started to think that maybe something was wrong. And I remember we went to an infertility doctor and sat down in his office and he did some tests and some examinations and then just delivered to us um, in his office, his office right there in Orange County, a nice corner window office with all this sunlight coming in. I remember that vividly. But what he would say would not warm the room as those sunbeams were doing. The news that he would give us would darken that room, darken our perspective, darken our minds. He would speak of the difficulties that lay ahead of us in trying to get pregnant again. Uh, and I remember crying with my wife in an office of a man I didn't even know. And we were so defeated and so sad. But then we got pregnant a week later. And we were like so overjoyed. But then that changed. And we went to our first appointment. A little hesitant. A little scared. A little nervous. And things did not come back the way we wanted them to. We had to have these medical explanations given to us. Information given to us because we didn't understand what was happening. And they explained to us that we had a molar pregnancy, that the, basically that what was growing and what identified as uh, human life was actually not human life, but was a collection of cells that could now cause cancer. And so those collection of cells that had been growing had to be removed, and Lindsay, my wife, had to be tested for months to see if cancer was growing. So we went from the joy of, yay, we're pregnant, to, no, you're not, and you may have cancer. Well, that's not great. <laughs> that's not what I wanted. That's not good. That's not what we, we deserved. And I remember praying a very older brother prayer. God, we deserve more than this. Father, we are serving you. We are sacrificing for you. We are working long hours, doing hard work. And we didn't pray for this house. And we didn't pray for this position. We're thankful for those things. But you know what we brought before you. You know the need that we brought before you. And it was not for these things. It was grow our home. Give us another child. We deserve more than this. But God is gracious. Gracious to the self-righteous. Gracious to the older brother. And he was gracious to me. God met me, sat down right next to me, put his arm around me and whispered in my ears, my child, son. And through his word, he showed me what I deserved. And he showed me all the blessings that he had given me, how gracious he had been to me. 
And after God straightened me out, he gave me two more sons. <laughs> he gave me Dexter and he gave me Maddox. It's awesome how God works like that. But I'm sure you know a story and a time in your life, and maybe that time's right now, where you find yourself in that position of the older brother. You feel you deserve more. And maybe that is soured even more than that, that you think others deserve less. And earning and deserving are now in your vocabulary when you pray and when you think about God and when you read His Word. Friend, can I tell you, the self-righteous are just as lost as the sinners. Just as far away from the heart of God as the rebel. But thank God that He is patient with us. He will chase after you he will sit next to you, speak tenderly to you, and say, Son, see, daughter, see what I have given you. See what you deserve. See what your sins afford you. See the destruction that is before you. See what I snatched you from. And look at what I've given you. Now, I said that as we dive into these stories, we'd see how this shapes the future of our church, Valley Bible Church. And the last two Sundays, we've looked at how we always wanted to make Jesus the hero. That was the first message in this series, that Jesus would always be the hero. The second message, we said we're always going to run with a father. This is the things we've always been about, the things we will always be about, is that Jesus will always be the hero, and we always will be running with the father, stride for stride with him, matching his pace towards those who are lost. But today, I want to end a little differently I want us to focus on who we do not want to be. Who one of our greatest dangers and conflicts is. What we need to overcome. And that is we do not want to become a church of the older brother. So church, here's what I'm going to do. And I know it may sound strange and it may feel a little awkward. But I'm going to end our time together with a prayer of confession. And I'm not going to use we, and I'm not going to use us, and I'm not going to use you. I'm going to keep the finger pointed right here. My prayer will be an I prayer, a me prayer. But I want to invite you into that prayer. That maybe you've been at a spot where you've had the older brother in here. That you believe you deserve more, and others deserve less. That you're good on your own. That you don't need God's mercy. You've seen this come out, the symptoms of not being hospitable to those who are far from God in complaining about the situation that you're in. You found the older brother rising up in you, maybe even in this situation, maybe even in this crisis, maybe even in this pandemic, you've had that plea to God, I deserve more. And if that's you, I want you to pray with me a prayer of help and confession, asking God to help us to never be the older brother, and to never be a church of older brothers. Pray with me. Father, I confess that the older brother is in me. Father, I know that I've complained about your grace. 
when today's gifts aren't as abundant as yesterday's, I complain. Oh, but Father, there are still gifts. One less than yesterday doesn't mean they're absent. Father, help me see the abundance of grace you have given me. Father, I know that I have looked at others with more than I have. With more stuff, with more things, with more ease, with more comfort. And I've said to myself, I deserve that and they deserve less. Oh, Father, how I have been the older brother. And Father, I know you're on a mission You're on a mission to save lost sons and lost daughters. And I know my self-righteous attitude, my pride, gets in the way of that. And that scares me. So Father, I ask you to slay the older brother in me. Father, I know you have a mission for this church to reach this community with the hope of Jesus Christ. And Father, it is my great fear that I would leave this church to be like the older brother. May that never be. May we always match your heart, Father. May we never fall to the pride of a self-righteous church. May that never be us. Oh, Father, how our hearts are far from yours sometimes. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for speaking tenderly to us. Grant us the mercy of always reflecting your heart. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want to thank you again for joining us. It's been awesome to unpack this series with you, and we look forward to seeing you next Sunday.